Well, remain standing for just another couple of moments, and let me have you take your Bibles out now, and we're going to open them to the book of Acts this morning, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read uh, verses 22 through 32 in Acts chapter 2, just as you're turning there, a little background for those of you who may not be aware of this, the book of Acts records the, the history, the beginning of the New Testament church, and, and at the beginning here, uh, this is on the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit was sent by Christ to the church, and Peter is preaching, the apostle Peter is preaching to the people here and explaining to them Uh, the things about Christ, and we're going to pick up in the middle of that sermon in verse 22. Peter's preaching here, and this is the inspired word of God, so this is God speaking to us this morning. Let's keep that in mind as we hear these words. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that We are all witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for what he accomplished, Lord. And we thank you that you have revealed it to us in your most wonderful word. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray you would bless us who hear it, Father. And may we rejoice in what we learn this day. Through Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, sometimes important things in the world, critical things in the world, pivotal events can occur in an instant. They can occur in a very short time. Sometimes it doesn't take weeks and months and years for important things to happen. Sometimes they happen very quickly. And that's the case with the events that we are looking at this morning. If we survey the millennia of the existence of mankind, 
we find that no time in that history, no time is more important, no event is more significant, nothing is more determinative determinative for, for human history than the events that occurred over three days just over 2,000 years ago. Specifically, the events of what we today call Good Friday and Easter Sunday or Resurrection Day. Those things that took place in and around Jerusalem are without any doubt the most important events in the history of this world. With waves that resound and will resound into eternity. And they are so important because they center around a man who was proved by his rising from the dead on the first day of that week to be no mere man, but to be who he had claimed to be, and that is God himself, come to earth, having taken a human nature like us in all ways except without sin. And in Christian churches, we celebrate these events. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service this morning, we celebrate them not just on Easter Sunday morning, but we celebrate them on the first day of every week as we gather in Christ's name to worship God together. But there's this one Sunday each year on the Christian calendar that we give special attention to these events. Uh, And in the weekend of the church calendar that is... uh, Wrapped up with this today, we, we celebrate, we, we, we remember both the actual, physical, historical death of Christ and the actual, historical, physical, bodily rising of Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day. We talk about them together because the two events hang together. And not just because they they took place within a short span of time, within the, the span of three days. But you can't really talk about the resurrection without talking about the crucifixion. And you can't talk and understand the crucifixion without looking at the resurrection. The Bible usually joins them together. Jesus joined them together as he talked about them. And it's so important uh, because without the resurrection, the death of Jesus would have been meaningless, would have been of no effect, because then Jesus would have been just another religious teacher, a religious prophet, a zealot like many others who rose and who said what they needed to say or what they wanted to say and then died and stayed in the ground. The end. But because of the resurrection, beloved, Jesus was, as the Bible says, declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion and by which it shows itself to be true is reducible to one simple fact, the fact of the empty tomb. Now, it used to be in our our world, in our country, that that almost everyone, non-Christians included, still had an understanding of what we celebrate today, 
what we celebrate on Good Friday when Jesus was crucified and on Easter Sunday when he was raised from the dead. But today that's not so much the case. People's understanding of the Bible, their exposure to the Bible and of the truth of scriptures is, is low today. And unfortunately, even among people in the church, the understanding of these things is low. Uh, we don't know the details. We don't know the meaning. And even for those who have a, have a basic grasp of these events, there are some very important facts surrounding the, the death and resurrection of Christ that many don't know. Facts that are important, facts that are critical, essential to a good, accurate, biblical understanding of these events that literally changed the world and literally will change eternity for many. And I want this morning to, to lay before you some things that you may not know, you may not have thought about. Now, some of you will have, some of you will know all of these things, but some of you will not. And so I want to lay out and step through nine things that you may not know about Easter. And when I speak of Easter here, we're, we need to include, as I mentioned, we need to include both the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Nine things you might not know. The first thing that you may not know is that Jesus' death and resurrection were planned in advance, way in advance. If we look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, we know that from fairly early in, in Jesus' ministry that the Jewish religious leaders, especially that group known as the Pharisees, were looking for a way to rid themselves of Jesus. They didn't like the things he said. They, they didn't like the things that he exposed about them and their superficiality and their legalism and their false teaching. They didn't like Jesus, and from very early in Jesus' ministry, we read that they were looking for a way to get rid of him, for good. At several points, we're told how they were looking for any way, scheming, meeting together, discussing, how do we get rid of Jesus? And eventually, they landed on a plan that worked. They eventually procured the help of a traitor within Jesus' own followers, group of followers, to see Jesus done away with. And so there was a plan in the religious leaders of the day to see Jesus killed. But the truth is that Jesus' death was planned way before that, and not by the Pharisees. And that is true because of what the death of Jesus is. And what it is, is the God-ordained and God-planned way of bringing salvation to everyone who will believe in Christ. The death of Christ didn't come as a surprise to God. It didn't come as a surprise to Jesus that these events transpired the way they did. In fact, Jesus explained, it was for this very thing that I came here. In fact, look at the passage that we read just at the beginning of the sermon this morning in Acts chapter 2. As, as Peter speaks of it in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Stop there. This was done, the death of Christ was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And the word foreknowledge refers to foreordination, of putting it in place. It was a certain positive plan. It was not not subject uh, to chance. It was not something that just happened by a collision of different events and different ideas. It was God's plan. Over in Acts chapter 4, we read that truly in this city... He says, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They are the ones who were all involved in the death of Jesus. And he goes on and says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, were planned in the minutest detail, all before the world even began. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God that Peter speaks of there is that plan that the Bible teaches God conceived and laid down before the events of Genesis chapter 1 ever took place. And so Jesus' death, his resurrection, was planned by God. Now, does that mean that the Jews and the Romans did not have a choice in their actions? Well, no, it doesn't. Of course, they acted as they chose to act. There were uh, situations that coincided and people whose paths crossed and things that took place. Verse 23, again, in Acts chapter 2, says that you crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. You're culpable. They killed Jesus by acting out of their own freedom to act as they desired. They killed Jesus because they wanted to kill Jesus. They killed him because they hated him. We read in the scriptures that they killed him because they were jealous of him. They wanted him dead. But stepping back from that, they also killed Jesus. They didn't know this, but it was because Jesus, because God chose it to be done. Because it was the only way for man to be rescued from the penalty of sin. So all of these events were orchestrated, were decreed by God. He allowed these men to do the things that they wanted to do, but he was moving history along as he moves all of history along. Ephesians 1.11 says that God is he who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. So, you may not have known that Jesus' death and resurrection were planned in advance, far in advance. Now you know. And just as it was planned long before, it happened so, secondly, that his death and resurrection were announced in advance, far in advance. One of the ways that we know that it was planned in advance is, is that because it was clearly announced in advance, in advance, then the repository of those announcements 
is the Bibles that you hold in your lap this morning. Throughout the Old Testament, and I mean throughout the Old Testament, from the beginning of Genesis, there are hints, there are foreshadowings, there are prophecies of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. They're scattered throughout the Bible, sometimes in very general ways, sometimes in strikingly specific ways. His death is hinted at and foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. As far back, again, as I say, as the beginning of human history. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, verse 15, it was revealed there right after the fall that a descendant of this woman, a descendant of Eve, would undo, would frustrate, would destroy the work of the serpent says that the fruit of the woman would come and he will bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's fairly general, but it's also fairly definite. Someone associated with the human race, a member of it, an offspring of this woman would come and destroy, crush the head, bruise the head of the enemy of God and of God's people. But to do that, it says that his own heel would be bruised. His own heel would be crushed. And later we, were, we learn that that is a reference to the death of Jesus. We learn that this great victory of this seed of the woman will be accomplished through the death of the victor, who is later pictured in, in the worship of God's people as a lamb who would come, who by his death will rescue God's people from death. And that is Christ. In Psalm 41, verse 9, the writer reveals that this one would be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. And not by an enemy, but by a friend. And you know, as you read the, the record of the, the arrest of Christ and the death of Christ, that it came to be because Judas betrayed Jesus into the hand of men. Judas, one of Jesus' inner circle of his disciples. Psalm 22 also predicts that Jesus would be killed by Gentiles, by non-Jews. And that's very interesting because as it works out in the Gospels, although the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, they were not allowed to kill Jesus. They were... Under Jerusalem, Israel was under the the thumb of the Roman Empire. And so to carry out executions was one of the things that the Jews could not do. Only the Romans, only the Gentiles could do that. And under Pilate, a Roman governor, that's what happened. So though the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, they they were the, the impetus behind it. The Romans, the Gentiles, are the ones who did it, just as Psalm 22 says. Psalm 22 goes on and describes some of the physical torture of crucifixion in verses 14 and 15. I'll let you read that yourself if you'd like to. It even foretells the seemingly small detail that his clothes would be gambled for, which was also specifically, fully precisely fulfilled when the soldiers, and Jim read this this morning when he uh, read from John chapter 19, when the soldiers who crucified Jesus after they had distributed his clothes, they had one nice piece left and they thought, let's not tear that up and, and divide it, so let's cast lots for it. 
Let's throw dice for it. Let's flip a coin for it. Let's gamble for it. And in John 19.24, we read that that's exactly what happened. In Isaiah 53, I've mentioned that a couple of times today in in describing Jesus' death. If you don't know Isaiah 53, it sounds, you know, it's written 700 years before Christ came, but Isaiah 53 sounds like it was written and could have been written at the very time of Jesus' death. So specific is it? Read Isaiah 53 this afternoon, and you'll see that. And then, of course, Jesus, during his own day, in his own ministry, throughout his public ministry several times, spoke in detail of what awaited him in Jerusalem and gave to us an announcement of his own death and resurrection. Listen to this from Matthew 20. Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So his death was prophesied and predicted throughout the history of the world. His resurrection is likewise predicted in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 1610 is is a psalm that's referred to more than once in the New Testament. And in that psalm, God assures King David, who wrote that psalm, that God, he said, would not abandon his soul to the grave or allow his Holy One to undergo decay or to see corruption. In fact, Peter quoted it this morning in the passage that we read in Acts chapter 2. Peter refers to this passage and demonstrates that David could only have been speaking not about himself but about the Messiah. Let me remind you, it's in verse 29 through 32. It says their brothers, or he, the, the quote is before that. For you will, verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Then Peter says uh, in verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Here's one thing that we know about David, and that is that he died and was buried and is still buried. His tomb is with us there in Jerusalem. But he says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he, Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, that is to the place of the dead, to the grave. Nor did his flesh seek corruption. So a prediction there of of Christ's Resurrection Again, Isaiah 53 that talks so, so, so vividly about the death of Christ goes on and, and nevertheless says that Jesus would see the fruit of that work. That God would prolong his days. That God's will would prosper in his hands. That could not have been done if he would have stayed dead. And again, we have Jesus' own numerous prophecies of his own resurrection that he would be raised on the third day. Jesus never talks about his death without saying, and be raised on the third day. So you may not have known that Jesus' death and resurrection were announced in advance, far in advance, throughout the Old Testament. But now you know. Thirdly, something you may not know, is that the civil authorities of Jesus' day, the ones who ended up crucifying him, repeatedly proclaimed him innocent of any charges 
at all, specifically of any charges worthy of death. The civil authorities repeatedly proclaimed Jesus innocent of any charges. Now, the Jews charged Jesus, they accused Jesus of blasphemy since he claimed to be God. But two, Romans author- two Roman authorities, civil authorities, not one but two, Pilate and Herod, both of whom interviewed Jesus, they both found and publicly proclaimed, we read about it in the Gospels, that he was innocent, that there was no cause, there was no reason to crucify Jesus. And Pilate tried on several occasions to see Jesus released, but the Jews would not let up. Crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. Let his blood be on us, the crowd said. And so ultimately, Pilate took that infamous action of washing his hands and saying, I wash my hands of this man. His blood is not on my hands. So the death of Jesus was not only pursued because of jealousy, but it was pursued without just cause. Jesus went to death an innocent man. Innocent before man and innocent before God. Because he never sinned. He was without sin. He did perfectly everything that God commanded to be done. And he was innocent before God and man, of course, because he was God in the flesh. And therefore was without sin of any kind. And he was crucified without any charges being proven against him. And if you didn't know that before, you know it now. The fourth thing is that the Romans didn't kill Jesus. Now, in one sense, of course, they did. Pilate, the civil authority of the land, a Roman governor, eventually condemned Jesus to be dead, to be crucified. It was under the auspices of the Roman Empire that Jesus was crucified. It was Roman soldiers who carried out the death sentence against Jesus. So it was by the mechanism of the Roman government, Roman law and punishment, it was under them that Jesus was crucified. But again, in Acts 2, again there in verses 22 and 23, Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It says there that he was delivered up according to that plan that we talked about earlier. Delivered up by God the Father. Given over by God the Father. Romans 4.25 talks about it. Romans 8.32 talks about it. John 3.16 talks about it. Acts 2.23 here talks about it. That he was turned over by God to men. Given over for them to do what they so wanted to do. Because you see, if God did not intend for his son to be delivered up and crucified, guess what? He would not have been turned over, delivered, and crucified. Even at Jesus' arrest, Jesus asked Peter, he says, Peter, when Peter pulled out his sword, he says, Peter, do you not think that I can't appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? If God would have wanted Jesus to escape crucifixion, Jesus would have. 
But Romans 8.32 tells us that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And what's more, Jesus himself, and this is part of the, the profound wonder of Jesus' work, Jesus went to this willingly, while all the, all the while in control of the entire situation. We see several points when you look at the story where Jesus demonstrates that he is the one in control even while he is being arrested falsely and crucified. He said in John 10, verses 17 and 18, that he, the Son of Man, has authority to lay down his life, which is what he did. They didn't take it, he laid it down. And to take it back up again, he said, which is what we celebrate this morning. Even at the end of his life, at the end of his time on the cross, and Jim again read this today, when Jesus says, it is finished, we read that then Jesus bowed his head and yielded up his spirit. He chose the time of his death. And it was such that when the soldiers came to, to break the legs of the, the prisoners to hasten their death, they were surprised to find that Jesus was already dead. Why was he dead? Because he had chosen the time of his death. So that they would not break his legs, so that his, none of his bones would be broken, so that he would fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament. So the Romans didn't kill Jesus. God delivered him over to them. By the way, in another very real sense, my friend, you and I killed Jesus by making it necessary for him to die. More on that later. So the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. The Romans carried it out. You and I made it necessary, but God planned it in order to accomplish a great, great good. And if you didn't know that before, you know it now. Fifth, the Jews invented a false story to explain away the resurrection, a story that's still popular today, though it suffers from the same problems as it did then. That's the fifth thing that you might not know about Easter. You know, one of Jesus' bold claims, as we've seen, intimately connected to his claim to be the Son of God, was his claim that after his death he would rise on the third day, and that he mentioned that several times. It's an aspect of his teaching that the Jews listened to and that they made note of. They didn't believe it, but they heard it, and they remembered it. And it comes up twice by them, in connection with Jesus' crucifixion. The first time is on Saturday, the day after the crucifixion, but before the resurrection. Matthew recorded that that the chief priests, those are part of the, the Jewish people, the Pharisees, that religious leader group, group of religious leaders, they go to Pilate, the secular authority, and say to him that, that this Jesus had said that he was going to rise on the third day. And they make a request. They say, therefore, order that the tomb with Jesus in it is is made secure until the third day. It says, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And it says the last deception, the last fraud will be worse than the first. And so Pilate gives them the guard. He says, go ahead. You have your guard. And he told the guard, go and make this tomb as secure as you can. You Roman soldiers, elite 
in the, the, the annals of history, you go secure this tomb, you create a, a, a crime scene, and you seal it. Lock down the site, secure the site. So they talk about that story that the disciples, they're afraid, would come and, and say that he was risen from the dead after they had stolen the body. Well, the second time that they refer to Jesus' claim that he would rise from the dead is after he had, in fact, done just that. The Roman guards who were there, who witnessed the angel coming down and rolling back the stone, at which point they just faint dead away, we read. Afterwards, they go to the Jews and tell them what had happened. And Matthew again records that the chief priest then pays off the Roman guards and gave them a story to tell. And guess what the story is? It says, tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. While you were asleep. An absurd story. On several levels. I mean, these guards were responsible. Pilate had given them a responsibility for the safety of the tomb. They had set the seal of the Roman Empire on the seal of the stone that would deter any grave robbers. These trained guards would not have all fallen asleep at the same time so that the disciples could have come and stolen Jesus' body. Since if something happened, they would have given their lives or would have forfeited their lives if they let Jesus escape. And in fact, the Jews assure the guards that if the story of them falling asleep gets back to their superiors, we'll make it good. We'll smooth it over with them. But this story is still said today. In the, the arguments against the resurrection, it comes up again and again that, well, what happened, you see, was that the, the, in order to keep Jesus' image alive, the disciples came and they stole the body away. The same thing, despite that it suffers from the same problems of being absurd. And if you didn't know that before, now you do. The sixth thing to know is that Jesus was crucified for a very specific reason. We've seen that his death was the result of the predetermined plan and foreordination of God. We've seen that it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a chance occurrence. It was done for a very specific and a critically important reason. And the writers of the New Testament clearly give us that reason. That it's the result of several facts coming together. The first is man's nature. The Bible explains about us that we are fallen, that we are sinful, that we are unrighteous, that we are evil, that there's not a one of us who is good. Starting with the very first man, because of the very first man, every subsequent man and woman have come into this world, and sadly many have gone out of it, separated from God because of sin, alienated from God. We are sinful in every part of our nature. We lie and cheat and steal and hate and kill. We are corrupt in our thoughts and our words and our deeds because we are fallen people. Even the best of us are more like the devil than we are like Jesus. There is no one righteous. Paul says in Romans 1 that we willingly suppress the the truth that God has given to us. 
And we suppress the knowledge of God as the only, and the only object, the only right object of our worship. And we worship and serve, the Bible says, the creature, ourselves, rather than the creator. And as a result, the Bible says that we are all dead in our sins. All of us. Spiritually dead. Every single person, regardless of age, upbringing, financial status, social status, we are all devoid of spiritual life as we come into this world. It's also the result of not just man's nature, but God's nature. God is flawless. He is holy. He is righteous. He is morally perfect. And he is just. His nature demands that he must punish any transgression of his holy law, any lack of perfect continual conformity to his law, what the Bible calls sin. He can't just look the other way. He can't pretend it doesn't happen. If he did that, he wouldn't be just. And that means that he wouldn't be holy. And that means that he wouldn't be God. But he is holy. And he is just. And he will punish sin forever. Hell is a place, a place of everlasting punishment for all who reject God. That's a problem for us. God demands perfect obedience and no sin but we have no obedience and an abundance of sin. But the good news is that God is also loving and gracious and abounding in mercy and that he has enacted a perfect remedy to this problem that deals with sin while upholding and exalting his nature, satisfying his his grace and satisfying his justice. And that brings us to God's actions. The third thing that coalesced in this and gave the reason for Christ's death. And that is God's actions. He sent his son into the world. John 3.16. He sent him into the world giving him a human nature. Philippians 2. And he became like us. Except that he, because he was God, did not have a fallen nature. He was God and so he was holy. And in that human nature... Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God. In that human nature, Jesus on the cross suffered death and bore the guilt. He paid the penalty for sin. Not his own sin. He didn't have any. But for the sin of any and all who would call upon him and trust in him and entrust their souls to him. That is the very specific reason for Christ's death that God's holiness and God's justice could be upheld while granting forgiveness to those who call out to God in simple trust and sorrow for their own sin. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life through believing in him. Being pardoned through his death for their sin and being credited with his righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus provided through his own perfect obedience. That's the reason that Jesus died. That is why we look at the events of a, of a man being taken and falsely accused and crucified, and we call that day Good Friday. is because of that very specific reason for which he died. If you didn't know all of that, now you do. 
You have heard the good news. That's the gospel. The seventh thing is that the worst and best part of the crucifixion was not even seen by those in attendance. By all accounts, crucifixion was one of the most horrid means of execution ever conceived by the warped minds of men. And it was intended that way. Death by crucifixion was designed as much for those who saw it as it was for those who experienced it. It was a statement. It was a warning of what lay in store for those who committed crimes worthy of death. And in addition to the physical torture of crucifixion, it was also a psychological torture because it was done publicly with many in attendance. And because of the fact that although in all of our paintings we sort of clean this up and make it nice by giving the people on crosses uh, robes or loincloths or something like that, no such modesty was granted to those who were crucified. Speaking of physical aspects, and I kind of have to to make this point, in execution by crucifixion, physics and anatomy combine to produce a long, slow, agonizing death of exhaustion loss of body fluids, multiple organ failure, and ultimately suffocation. As the exhaustion combined with the pull of gravity ends up making it just impossible to breathe. And such a death could take anywhere from hours to days. And at times, soldiers could hasten that death by coming along and crushing the bones of the lower leg with a club so that the people couldn't lift themselves up to breathe. And in fact, that's what they did on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, as I mentioned earlier. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs, fulfilling a prophecy. But one soldier, we read, Jim read, thrust a spear in Jesus' side to be sure that he was dead, also fulfilling prophecy. But beyond the horrifying experience and the fact that it was even horrifying to watch, Despite that, many stood on that day, soldiers, the Jews, Jesus' friends, his family, and even his mother, to watch this, to see the the death of their friend, their son, their enemy. And they saw it. But the worst part of Jesus' suffering, they could never see. The worst part of Jesus' suffering has never been depicted in painting, in drawing, in film, because it wasn't the physical suffering that constituted the truest suffering of Christ on the cross, as unimaginably horrific as that was. We sang a song a few minutes ago, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and one of the lines of that song said, many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him it says, was the stroke that justice gave. In another of the cries of Jesus from the cross, one gives us a glimpse into what was going on. At one point, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was not hyperbole. That was not exaggeration for effect. In those hours on the cross, as Jesus bore the sin of everyone who would trust in him, 
He suffered literally a fate worse than death. He suffered hell on the cross. He suffered the abandonment of the Father. He felt forsaken by God because he was for that short time when God poured out the full measure of his wrath against sin upon his perfect, sinless Son. On the cross, Jesus found no grace, no mercy, so that you could find grace and mercy. Jesus experienced only justice, wrath, and punishment, the essence of hell. Anything less, and Jesus' death would have been insufficient to save anyone. But he bore it all. And that wasn't visible to the people watching him die. And he bore it all willingly because of the great love with which he loved us. You may not have known about that, but you know it now. The eighth thing was that Jesus was resurrected for a very specific reason. Moving on from Friday to Sunday morning. And very simply, it is this, that the resurrection was God the Father's seal of approval on all that Jesus had said, all that Jesus had done. Especially on the sacrifice that he offered on the cross. It proved that Jesus was who he said he was. Because he based all of his claims on this this truth, this, this prediction that he would rise from the dead. Because that's something that only God can do. And because he did in the physical realm what only God can do, it gives assurance that he did what only God can do in the spiritual realm. Because he rose from the dead, something we can see, we know that he did what he said he did in the realm that we cannot see. As he offered up to God that perfect sacrifice that is able to take away sin. And the resurrection beloved, is proof that God accepted that sacrifice. The resurrection of Christ also assures us of something. It assures us not only of what Christ did and the salvation that he offers to us and gives to us, but it also assures us of our own resurrection on the day when Christ returns. And all of that is why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is indispensable to Christianity. And and that's true for Christianity in the very broadest consideration of it. From Orthodox to Roman Catholic, from Baptist to Pentecostal non-denominational churches to Reform and Presbyterian denominations with all of their differences and their substantial differences. They all agree that the Bible says that the tomb was empty on Easter morning. And that was because he had risen, just as he said. And Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 15, said that if he hadn't, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, he said, this is all nonsense. He says, our preaching would be in vain if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Your faith would be in vain, and you would still be in your sins if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead. But Paul goes on and says that, in fact, Christ was raised from the dead. 
And so our preaching is not in vain. Our preaching of the gospel is the means that God uses to convert sinners as well as to strengthen saints. Our faith in Christ is properly placed because that's the one who can save us by that faith. And if you didn't know that before, you know it now. And that leads us to a final thing that you may not know about the resurrection, but that you need to know. And that is that the truth that it presents, the facts that it gives to us, the things that we've looked at, that every human being must decide what they are going to do with those facts. It's very important to notice and believe that the critical actions of dealing with sin have been taken by Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose from the dead. And that's all by design. God had done this work. His son Jesus had paid the price. Salvation comes totally by grace. God's grace. It is a gift. His son did all the dirty work. The gift is given freely by God to any who will believe it and trust it and receive it. But here's the thing. You can't be indecisive about it. In fact, you cannot remain neutral. Having heard what you have heard this morning, if you are not a believer, you will either receive this gift of God, turn away from yourself, and turn away from from the burden of your sin that you carry, and look to Christ and have that burden removed, or you will reject the free offer that God makes through the gospel. You will reject the gift of God and reject the only hope that you have of salvation. No human being hearing these things can remain neutral. Everyone must decide what they're going to do with these facts, what they're going to do with this offer, what they're going to do with what Christ has done. And the message of the Bible, the message of the church, the message of Easter is what Paul said in Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And here's one more thing to consider. You may not have known these things when you came in this morning. You may not know how it came about. You may not know that Jesus' death and resurrection were planned in advance, that those things were announced long before they happened. You may not have known that the civil authorities repeatedly proclaimed Jesus innocent of any charges, that the Romans didn't kill him, that the Jews invented a false story to explain it away. And you may not have heard that Jesus was crucified and resurrected for these very specific reasons, to bear the guilt of those who will trust in him, to offer them eternal life, You may not have heard that every human being even must decide what they are going to do with these facts. You may not have even heard them before. Or you may have heard them a thousand times before. But you heard them this morning. You have been confronted with your need. You've been confronted with God's remedy. 
You may may not have known this before, but you know it now. And the question this morning is what will you do? You believe it or will you reject it? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the wonder of Christ. That your only begotten Son was sent to take our nature upon himself, to live among us, to live in obedience to your law, to live perfectly in obedience to it, and to offer himself up as a sacrifice for sin, to bear the condemnation that we have earned for ourselves, that we deserve for ourselves, that he bore it willingly in our place. He was condemned so that we need not be. And Father, for those of us who know this, for those of us, Lord, who know these things, let us just rejoice in reflecting upon them, in seeing again what Christ has done through his death and his resurrection. May we give thanks to you, Lord. But for those, Lord, who may not know this, who may not have heard these things before, we pray, Father, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would use these things, use the words of your gospel to convict sinners, and that you would use it to convert sinners, to turn them to you, O God, that they might trust in Christ and be saved. We rejoice that Christ is risen, that he is risen indeed as a proof that he is your son and that he is our Savior. We rejoice in him this morning and we thank you for him and for his work. Amen.